0: And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody. Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're joining us. And on today's podcast, we have Brian Zahn with us and Brian is a pastor In Saint Joe, Missouri, which is about 45 minutes north of Kansas City, Brian has been pastoring that church for 40 years. This is his 20. I mean, this he started it 40 years ago. You started this church, right? Right. Word of Life Church. He started it when he was 22. 22. Mm -hmm. He is now celebrating his 40th year. I hardly ever meet pastors that pastored longer than I did in one place, which was 29 years. But you started your church younger. I I was 29. You started at 22. And then, yeah. And then you're still going. You
1: know, the real story, Fred, is (laughs) that I say we started at 22, November 1st, 1981. And that's true enough but it just grew out of the coffee house ministry from the Jesus movement Mm -hmm. that I'd been leading since I was 17. So in one sense, I have been doing this for 45 years because I mean, it's the same group of people. We just said, okay, we're going to acknowledge really we are effectually a church. And so we're going to start meeting on Sundays and be a church, but, but it was the same group of people. So, and, I, and I, nothing really changed that much. I was already doing the work of a pastor. So right. I tell people I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> mm. And that's true. I mean, it's not it's not like a plan. It's not something you should aspire to do, but it's what happened.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, when I, when I graduated from high school, I you know, I went to Baylor down in Texas and I went Mm -hmm. to seminary in Texas. And then I was on staff at a church in Virginia. So it wasn't until I was 29 that I came back to Kansas city and started the church and just knocking on doors, you know, so uh, it was a, I've knocked on doors.
1: I mean, if you can do it, I've led worship. I've printed bulletins. I've swept (laughs) floors, cleaned (laughs) toilets. You know, I mean, if you
0: can do it in ministry, I've probably done it. Yeah. I, I, I'm the same. So let's, let's have folks um, just hear just a, a little bit of your story, how you, how you came to Christ, um, how you end up. Yeah. Just give us well, a, I mean, a little. I mean, we've already, I've already been part. kind of hinting at it. yeah hinted at it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I had a very dramatic conversion when I was 16. Just overnight, I went from me in the high school, Led Zeppelin freak to the high school, Jesus freak. Still like Zeppelin, yeah, I understand. But, but. <laughs> So I was just known as that you know, long-haired Zeppelin freak. And then overnight, I'm talking about Jesus to everybody. And I don't know if I think some people thought maybe it was a joke or they didn't. They didn't. But really, by the time it settled in that, uh, no, this was not a joke, my friends would come to me and teachers, too, because it was a very dramatic change. And everybody called me Fry. Nobody called me Brian. I was known as Fry. And they said, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I would say, I know, right? (laughs) I can hardly believe it either, but it's happened. And as I already alluded to, by the time I was 17, this is during the Jesus movement. If people have any idea what that was, it was a very fantastic time. And it was very countercultural, young people finding Jesus. And we were meeting originally in the basement of a dive bar on third street. And then we met in a couple of other locations over that period of time. This was, it was mostly a music venue. So music's always been in my life. And, but it, it also had a component of kind of feeling like a church. And that's where I first began to do some teaching. And then it officially became word of life church in November of 1981. So yeah, 40 years. And so um, that's a long time. Well, let me me add a little bit more. So the church began small and stayed small for seven years. And all the church growth experts, I don't know if we still have those people out there. We probably do. I don't pay much attention to that world. But, um, you know, everybody will tell you, you know, if your church doesn't break 100 in seven years, it's never going to break 100. And I'm sure they're right, but it wasn't true for us. Mm -hmm. And so we were under 100 for seven years. Yeah. And then it began to grow exponentially mm. and uh, grow into the thousands. And to this day, I mean, I have, I have some idea of why that happened, but a lot of it I don't really know why it happened. And it was a wild ride. It was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will look back and say, you know, to go through a period of time where every Sunday is your record attendance. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. Uh, it it wasn't our best moments, but it was fun. Right. <laughs> and by the time I was entering my forties, you know everything was good. We have a big building, big church, big everything. And I should have just been content, I suppose, but I wasn't. I was increasingly unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. At at not at ease. I began to sense that something was wrong. I was having something, some kind, some form of a crisis of faith, not about Jesus, but I just felt like the Jesus that had captured me as a teenager deserved a better Christianity than I knew. And so this put me on a search, and I began to become very serious about theology, first with patristics, and then later with more contemporary academic theology and loved it just loved it philosophy theology loved Mm -hmm. it of course as you know uh what you read and what you read very deeply is going to affect your thinking and your thinking is going to affect your preaching and so beginning about 2004 not not about 2004 exactly 2004 I remember because what happens? We started a Jesus movement that led us into the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. which I describe as good until it wasn't. Uh, charismatic led us kind of into we were we were word of faith. I don't think the most egregious expression of it, but you know we were. Uh, so so you have to think of a kind of a, of a charismatic '90s era coming into the 2000s, word of faith church, pretty big, and I start instead of biting Jesse Duplantis who'd spoken at our church a lot of times I'd start bringing in Walter Brueggemann <laughs> <laughs> I mean if that if that gives you an idea of the kind it gives of, me an idea my audience, know, of the kind of know, changes, some of my that were happening
0: know that but and Jesse Duplantis um, would have been called the maybe one of the modern fathers of the charismatic Pentecostal movement right or living fathers and uh and then, Walter Brueggemann uh, is, is the greatest Bruegerman. living
1: English-speaking Old Testament scholar in my Christian,
0: opinion. Yeah, Christian Old Testament scholar. Right. Yeah, I I wouldn't probably argue with you.
1: There's a and, couple others
0: I really like, but uh, right, I like John Walton. I like uh, you know. Anyway, I can run down.
1: Well, those. but here's the thing about Brueggemann. He's also just a, a just a really good preacher. He, I he's a scholar. Preach. He's an academic, but he can preach, and he he grew yeah. up in Missouri. Uh, and he grew up as a preacher's kid, oh, and so he retained yeah. some of that. Yeah. But anyway, so, so this began to change me. And I think, I think I could have kept most of the congregation through the changes, except when I began to challenge. And this is, you know, this it's much worse today. But when around 2004, five, six, seven, I began to challenge Christian nationalism, civil religion the very comfortable relationship between evangelicals and the Republican party. When I began to challenge all of those kinds of concepts, began to critique America as not a, just tell the congregation, look, you have to understand the United States as not a kind of biblical Israel, but as a kind of biblical Babylon. That kind of stuff eventually uh, enabled me to preach over a thousand people out of my church, and that was very painful because these were not just nameless, faceless people to us. These were people that we'd done life with and that, that you know, I had maybe led to the Lord, baptized, married, baptized their kids, married their kids, yep. and they were leaving saying things like, you know, BZ's gone liberal, which isn't how I thought about it at all, uh, or worse yet, they would say, he's backslidden, which that was... That one hurt because I thought, if anything, um, I feel like I'm making the greatest strides in the direction of fidelity to Christ in my life. It's costing me, but but I'm committed to being a faithful pastor and, and yeah. a true witness to Christ. And then to just to have people even say, you're and that hurt. Yeah. And so we went through a very painful time. It took us 10 years to transition the church to what wow. it is today, which I, I don't have a nice little neat handle for what we are. Right. Um, you know, we're still contemporary in our worship style, but we're also very sacramental, weekly Eucharist, uh, lean heavy into the Book of Common Prayer, the great traditions important to us, preach from the lectionary, that sort of stuff. Um, so it took us 10 years to make this transition, and, and we did, and we're in a good place. But Perry and I, we came out of that pretty beat up. Yeah. And and hurting more than we even knew because you can go through a period of such heavy stress
0: hard for um, people who haven't been pastors right. to really understand this. It's, actual, just, it's, it's like
1: getting, it's, you know, it's like being dumped by your girlfriend yeah, a yeah, thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps happening. happening the rejection happening.
0: factor over rejection. and over and over again, you know, and yeah. then
1: the, and you'll appreciate just, just, you know, you lose that many people and you have a big church. All of a sudden there's financial strain and you're yeah. dealing with that. And that's mm-hmm. heavy. Uh, it wasn't until we walked the Camino de Santiago, This 500 mile walk across Spain on an ancient pilgrim path that that we healed. Mm. And I don't know how to say it other than, you know, we began as pretty wounded, pretty Mm. hurt in Saint Jean Pied de Port, France Mm. on September 14th, 2016. And 40 days later, when we arrived in Santiago de Compostela, Spain, we were well. Now, that may sound, you know, like kind of simplistic or or Mm. a cliche, but it, no, it's really true. We walked our way out of pain into healing and Mm. that's really true. And, and the happiest days of our ministry have been since then, even though it's been an, even though everybody looks, looks around and say, look, you know, from 2016 to 2022 is, has not been the easiest time for anybody. And that's true but personally, I I feel like we're in a good place and Mm -hmm. it's enabled us to be able to pastor during this season. That has been definitely challenging. Yeah. That that was more information than you wanted. No, but that's good though. I think that that
0: gives people a really uh, good idea. And you know, when you, and I'm writing a lot these days,
1: that's, that's the other, I mean, that's, that's as much of what I do as anything I've written almost 11 books in the past 13 years. Come August, it'll be. I will will have written eleven. A nine are already out. One will come out this fall, and then this one will come out next fall. So uh, you know, you you write eleven books in thirteen years. You are an author. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm also though still leading a church and pastoring and preaching every week and traveling. So, but uh, as far as what I feel like is, well, the church is very important. But I think my writing also is is important right now. So. I'm trying to give time to that. I haven't yeah. given time to that.
0: Well, you're good at it. So uh, I'm glad you're doing that. I think, I think people, you know, when you transition, when you build a church around one culture and sort of one theology and it's successful, mm-hmm. and then you try to take that church and morph it into a different culture with different values and different theology even. I mean, you you made some pretty big theological changes, which we're going to talk about now. All right. Okay. So, um, by the way, folks, uh, I went up and visited with Brian a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, we're sitting here on what is today, June twenty one of twenty twenty two, and we I drove up to St. Joe, hung out with Brian, and thanks for your gracious. Uh, time and kindness, and then you gave me two of your books. First one I want to talk about is this one: "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God." And then I want to leave more time to talk about your newest book, "When Everything's on Fire." Okay, mm-hmm. so I'd highly recommend both these books to anybody who's listening. Brian Zahn, "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God." And let's chat about that one first. A little, little tighter time frame on this one, um, but. Can, um, in terms of when I read it, uh my 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 biggest thought um was that you were, well, first of all, obviously you start out with Edward's classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but my thought was that you took basically a concept of a violent God. Yeah. Uh, from from passages in the old testament to um violent penal substitution atonement theories to hell to in time violence, eschatology thoughts about a violent God with violent theology. And you re uh, you rework that whole line of violence. And yeah, you, you've uh, read the book correctly, Fred, and begin to see a different God. I gotta love
1: so so here's how this book <clears> came about this was the sixth book that i wrote and i don't i don't say this anywhere in the book i don't tell this but this is what is in the background so i already i'd already written five books that deal with various themes and presenting god as loving gracious forgiving this is the very nature of who god is and nonviolent, etc 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 so those books had already been written and i had an audience of people who had an instinct to agree with me they were like yes 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 that sounds right i think i want to believe that but and the but is they have a bible (laughs) and (laughs) and and it's what about and it's essentially five questions that they were asking not in a contentious way, this this imaginary audience that isn't actually imaginary, I know they're out there, right? Who don't want to just throw away the Bible. They're, they they really believe God is love. They believe I'm telling them that God is not angry, violent, or retributive. And they go, I, I think I believe that. Mm-hmm. I want to believe that. I want to believe but that. But what about old testament violence? Right. What about the wrath of God? Right. What about uh, the violence of the cross? Mm-hmm right? What about um, eternal burning the book hell. Of revelation? What about hell? Yeah. And what so, about Armageddon? Yeah. So, so those, I don't set the book up like that. I don't say that's what I'm doing, but that is what I'm doing. Yeah. Old Testament violence, fear God, wrath of God, that sort of stuff, uh, violence of the cross, hell, and, you know, the book of Revelation, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's that's what that book's about yeah and this thought... was a case where where i mean that was all there but it was it was my literary agent that said and she's been really helpful to me andre heinecke and she's the one that said uh see i just had a sermon i just i did a sermon called sinners in the hands of a loving god just one you know you know had it is, one off sermon and she said brian that should be the title of your next book and you should just lean into this and so andrew really helped me with that and I, I would say it's probably i don't know about i don't have sales numbers and all that but i think it's probably the most popular book i've written people like it except and in fact i knew this when i wrote it i i thought people are going to like this book because i'm going to tell them good news that god is like jesus yeah and and people are going to like this book and it's going to be popular except among neo-calvinists <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> neo-Calvinist <laughs> bros are going to hate this book. Yeah, and they're the, they're the only people that have really not liked it. But they don't yeah. like it. But you know, you can't please yeah. everybody.
0: Yeah, our our neo-Calvinist friends wouldn't like this book. They don't for like sure.
1: If you, if you want to go on uh, we, YouTube, we don't. I don't recommend it. But you can find plenty <laughs> of neo-Calvinist bros. Uh-huh. You know, they're all uh-huh. about thirty-six years old, and they're all alike telling you that i'm a heretic and i'm not yeah <laughs> and what's interesting if you and i know you're reading it carefully is my sources are not typically as far as theological influences are not contemporary progressive theologians they're church fathers <laughs> and yeah. so i yeah. <laughs> i tend to argue that I'm, I'm really in in the most accurate sense of the word i'm really pretty conservative in that I draw upon the patristic sources, especially yeah. the Eastern Church Fathers. Western yeah. Church Fathers is a different story, but the Greek-speaking Eastern Fathers. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, another source of that that I, I found when I was in uh, seminary, I was in a Southern Baptist seminary, and um, one of my history professors was a guy named William step And he was considered one of the foremost scholars on Anabaptist history. Mm -hmm. He wrote a a book called The Anabaptist Story. He had had translated the Schleitheim Confessions, which were the confessions for the Anabaptist church. Uh, The Anabaptists were the only uh, reformers that didn't kill people.
1: Yeah, they were the radical reformers. They They, were the radical reformers. And and they
0: they got killed is what they did. They didn't kill people, but they they got killed. They got killed by everybody everybody killed the Anabaptists, but they didn't kill anybody. They were, they were our pacifists. And when I, and I studied with ESTEP, I took all his classes. I really became very close to being a pacifist at that point in time, which always caused me to read the Bible through a nonviolent lens. So when I was reading your book, I was going, I like this. I like this. I like this. And, um, I thought you did a great job of, of tackling some of the uh, thoughts that people who are familiar with the Bible are, uh, come into contact with. It, it's not just people who know the Bible. Like, I would have people who had no religious background. They would come to faith at my church, put their faith in Jesus, and then they'd start reading the Bible for the first time. And they always start at the front, right? Right.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that is a non-Christian way of reading the Bible.
0: So they, so they start hitting, uh, you know, when they get, when they get to judges, you know, they're in trouble. (laughs) It's like, what I just, I just finished reading judges.
1: It is the most violent book in the Bible.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So then I, then I have to, then I have to start explaining why, why I'm a Jesus guy. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you know when you're eating. Well, judges, I mean, there's but... that
1: there's that story. It's it's uh, since I followed the lectionary this Sunday, um, the gospel reading is from Luke nine fifty one through fifty six, and this is when Jesus is refused hospitality in the Samaritan village, and James and John, the sons of thunder, say, "Hey, can we call down fire from heaven?" Right, like Elijah did. You know, Jesus, it's in the Bible. Uh-huh. It's in the Bible. Elijah did it. So can yeah. we do that? And Jesus rebukes them and says, well, what's wrong with you guys? You don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. Yeah. And so the point is, the question isn't, can you find it in the Bible? You, mm-hmm. can find, you can find all kinds of stuff in the Bible. Let me tell you that right now. Right. The question is, do you find it in Jesus? Yeah. And Jesus is Lord even over the bible yeah that is jesus saves the bible from being just another violent religious text and we have to because people say well i just take the bible as it is no you don't nobody does no nobody does nobody does someone says that i just take the bible as it is i look at them and i say oh I had no yeah.
0: idea you knew biblical Hebrew. There's not a single Greek. theological stream. And understood entire... ancient
1: Near East culture and the Greco-Roman world of the first. No, you did not take it as it is. Right. And so nor do people, it, it constantly has to be interpreted and Jesus is our, our best guide for how to interpret scripture.
0: Yeah. And he did it midrashically. Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll get at that word next in your next book. All right. I want to throw in mid-rash. I did. I did a one.
1: series. Just I called them the. Uh, what did I call? I think it's called them the, the Midrash sermons. I did a bunch of. I did some Midrash myself. Good, good. You know, and and just.
0: Well, I even felt like what you brought out. You know that classic. You know where Jesus reads the Isaiah scroll, and he yeah. gets halfway through a verse and then leaves, the second half out, the violent part, and then he, and then he gets. You know, I thought you did a great job with that text as well and that's a bit of a a mid rash reading sure of of isaiah right that's how that's how jesus so so, i mean that's how jesus and paul read the hebrew bible it's
1: the the culmination in isaiah 61 of anticipating jubilee and the day of the lord is it's the year of god's favor and the day of vengeance of our god jesus edits that last clause and says nothing about vengeance And then goes on and says, yes, I am bringing Jubilee. I am, but I'm bringing it for everybody. And then he takes these two Old Testament stories where there is a tacit indication of God's favor upon Gentiles. That is provision for the Syrophoenician woman and the healing of Naaman, the Syrian general. But Jesus doesn't keep it tacit. He makes it explicit. Mm. And he leans into that. He says, look, people. There are plenty of widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but it was the Gentile that was provided for. There were lots of lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, but it was the Gentile that was healed. Did they get the point that God's grace was supposed to be reaching out to all? Yes, they got the point and they tried to throw him off a cliff. Right. And the point is so much of religion is energized by vengeance. Yeah. And when you try to take away the vengeance energy from religion, unless people really see the kingdom and repent, they will turn on you and try to
0: throw you off a cliff. Yeah, that's,
1: that's that story.
0: <laughs> oh, even today they even today to, yeah that. things don't change that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I like the way you you dealt with hell. You know, I've been in the recovery world for almost three years. And uh, everybody there likes to say, you know, we're not afraid of hell. We've been through it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, so, and I think uh, that's true. Yeah, I do, too. And I thought you did a great job of uh, bringing out, you know, the, the, the concepts of Sheol and Genna and, you know, all those things. That's a good job. And then I loved the way you dealt with uh, end time violent dispensational theology. Um, yeah, I, I've never been a dispensationalist. Always, always thought yeah,
1: the Sermon this, on the this Mount is was one good. of the worst. Um, <laughs> this is one of the most egregious misinterpretations of scripture that has befallen the modern church. And it's mostly the modern American evangelicals. Yeah, church.
0: well, it's that. It, new. It,
1: it, this, this kind of interpretation of the Olivet discourse in the book of Revelation is not historic it's not it's modern i mean by modern it's essentially 20th century
0: yeah 100 years old
1: and it's very destructive i mean if you believe for example if you believe there must be a mega war in the middle east before jesus can return well you're going to be a pretty poor peacemaker right (laughs) because you're not going to believe that peace is possible right You're not even in one sense. You just like let's just get it over with. Let's just have this big war so that Jesus come can come back. I just want everybody that's listening to understand. Look, there doesn't have to be any war for the Perusia to occur. The the fullness of the kingdom of God can arrive while we are turning our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And this is what the early church always believed. What we've been duped into believing is that oh no 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 we're going to kick the can down the road we're not going to be peacemakers now we're not going to turn swords into plowshares now that'll happen when jesus comes again the early church says no no jesus has come and we're going to live as if we are citizens of his kingdom here and now we're going to be people of peace now no matter what the rest of the world does yeah and so um dispensational eschatology has been a blight upon the gospel of jesus christ and, and I will I do all I can to, I agree. to see the end of that kind of folly.
0: Well, just the idea. I mean, I, when I just say this to Christians, like the whole Sermon on the Mount, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount are suspended. They're not yeah. for this age. Yeah, that's They're what for Luther an age did, to come. Know. And so you're just like, really? So Jesus's most central teaching right. isn't, isn't for us.
1: That, and that's we're exactly and what we're Jesus Luther followers.
0: Called. I'm like, anyway.
1: All right. Yeah. Yeah. Luther okay, was wrong we... on that one. And then, then we're back to the Anabaptists. Yeah. And, uh, they we were the ones no, that we are, actually... we are to embody the ethic exactly. of the Sermon on the Mount here yeah. and now. Yeah. Which of course, for that's folks true. who are
0: listening, you know, Anabaptists, the, the, are today, you know, like Mennonites and Amish and I guess brethren, probably. I mean, there's several, uh, you know, generations of the, of the Anabaptist church, but uh, there's some, yeah. some good folks in those circles. So, all, all right. right.
1: And, and who you, who you want to read to get an Anabaptist, even though he's not technically an Anabaptist uh, is Stanley Hirewals. Oh, yeah. Who jokingly refers to himself as a high church Mennonite. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. Stanley Hirewals is the best, theologian for political theology in my opinion and it's it is anabaptist
0: great recommendation and great yeah 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 I, I mean i i cut my teeth on john howard yoder and you yep. know that whole crowd politics of jesus and stuff like that and then you know jim, it was howard jim wallace you know takes all of that seriously right? so he's a modern thinker along those lines it, it was so.
1: howard that got yoder's politics of jesus published Yoder uh, Howells found it in his papers and said, and, and found him a publisher. If mm. it weren't for Howells, we might not have ever really heard of John Howard Yoder.
0: Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right.
1: I, I, I read the, the Politics of Jesus was one of a handful of just absolute red pill awakening books. Mm. Of, I mean, one would be. um the Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann and The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder would be one, and maybe uh, The Beauty of the Infinite by David Bentley Hart. Hmm. Those were big books for me. I mean, Good. like
0: key yeah. moments. Good stuff, Brian. We should have bumped into each other a long time ago. I know. All right. <laughs> All right. So, um, well, who knows? Maybe God has something store still right so yeah um let's talk about your newest book when everything is on fire and man i loved uh i loved how you dove into uh the some of the key philosophers that you you uh expose people to in this book excellent job yeah i like Um, philosophy yeah um like let's let's just mention really quickly some of your the key philosophers that you unpack for people in the book. And also uh I thought you do a great job of unpacking some of Dostoevsky and uh and a little bit uh what Souls I mean, I'm I'm gonna say the name of and yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I I I uh the, the narrator, Levi the poet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, you Levi. do. Uh, I got my
1: Levi the poet. This is the guy that read my book, Levi. I mean, you unpacked but- Nietzsche.
0: I thought you unpacked Nietzsche really in a fun <laughs> but, way. Let, let, let me finish yeah. the story, though. Okay. So,
1: so, I, you know, he he was a narrator for my book because I didn't have time to do it, and I, and I was listening to it, and I texted him. I said, Levi, I forgot how many Russian names are in my book. I feel like I ought to apologize. <laughs> He says, there are so many Russian names in your book. And I accept your apology because <laughs> it, it <laughs> makes it, it makes it harder because Russian names are hard for English. People, yeah. English speaking people to pronounce.
0: <laughs> right. Well, OK. Nietzsche. Yeah. You, you uh, Nietzsche. You unpack Nietzsche, you unpack Derrida, you unpack, you know, just you kind of Paul Ricoeur. Uh, and, uh Carl Paschal, Rahner, who's kind of philosopher theologian. You talk a little bit about Kierkegaard, talk a little bit about uh Pascal. hmm Yeah. Well Some good good stuff.
1: I, I think I think I think that Nietzsche is so important. And I want people to know that I've read my Nietzsche. <laughs> I, I didn't do like a Wikipedia <laughs> perusal. I have read Nietzsche for the last 20 years or so. Uh, I, I like Nietzsche in the sense that, I don't know, I have a compassion for him. And he is such a good writer. That's part of what makes him interesting. I mean, not all philosophers are great writers, but he is. He's a great writer. What you need to know about him is he was a PK. A preacher's kid. Ah, that begins to explain a lot. (laughs) As one who has raised three PKs, I can tell you this about (laughs) PKs. They are acutely sensitive to hypocrisy.
0: Matt, my producer, is (laughs) a PK kid.
1: Yeah, (laughs) they've been behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so you have Nietzsche, who is a colossal intellect. And... He foresees where we are headed in the Western world as we come into the 20th century. He died in 1900. Uh, he was insane the last 10 years of his life. I mean, completely insane
0: institutionalized. Is that due to um, uh, his, uh, what the, What was the disease that killed all Well, people? we that, don't know. Who knows? Okay. I mean, the, uh,
1: his, really <laughs> so, his apologists will say, um he had syphilis yeah i've heard that um but you have to have sex to have syphilis and there's precious little evidence that nietzsche ever had sex um another thing about nietzsche he was he was he was rejected twice in marriage proposals and that factors in too Mm -hmm. um uh, renee Girard told me i mean personally sat with me and told me he says i'm absolutely convinced that Nietzsche's insanity was just due to his own thoughts, his own philosophy and the implications of it finally just crushed his mind. I mean, this is Rene Girard, one of the French immortals. This is not just some crank out. There or some fundamentalist preacher that doesn't like Nietzsche saying God is dead. This is Rene Girard. And, uh, but so, so in his book, I can't remember if it was the gay science or thus spake Zarathustra. It actually shows up in both of them, one of them more elaborate. But he gives us the parable of a madman. And he says, a man walked into a village on a bright sunny day, holding aloft a lantern and saying, whither is God? I seek God. I can't find God. Where has God gone? And the villagers come out and they're laughing at the absurdity of this spectacle of a man on a bright sunny morning carrying a lantern saying i'm looking for god i can't find god where is god and they're gathered around and they're laughing and suddenly the the madman shrieks i'll tell you where god is god is dead and we have killed him and they began to laugh all the more and finally the madman says oh i see i've come too soon my hour has not yet arrived but it's coming and then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. Uh, Nietzsche wrote that, I mean, I, in the 1870s, 1880s, I can't remember exactly when. What he's saying is that Western culture, through science and other um, advancements connected to the Enlightenment that began in the 17th century, no longer has God at the center of society. And when he says God is, I mean, yes, Nietzsche was an atheist, but he's not—he's not, it's not God is dead, ha-ha, you know, jokes on you, you dumb Christians. What he's saying is Western society as a whole has moved on without God. And God is dead as the organizing center mm-hmm. for society in Western culture. All right. But he says, I, I'm, I'm announcing this a little too early. And he was right. He says, you're not ready to hear this yet. Give it a few more decades. Mm-hmm. And, you, and he was right. I mean, he yeah. was right. But here's the difference. Don't confuse Nietzsche with the new atheists like uh, Hitchens and Harris and Dennett. Dawkins, those people, uh, there was nothing cavalier about Nietzsche in that. He knew what a dangerous move it was. And he said, we have unchained the earth from its sun. We are now, we've sponged away the horizon. If God Mm -hmm. is dead, if we're not going to engage with God anymore, uh, if we're not going to believe in God anymore, well, Mm -hmm. then... As Dostoevsky would say, without God, all things are permitted. And so the the horizon is sponged away. The earth is unchanged from its sun. We're floating through a vast nothingness. And people that don't really understand nature, maybe just heard of him in Pat. They say, oh, he was a nihilist. No, he wasn't. I mean, he didn't want to be. I'll put it that way. That was his great philosophical project was to produce an atheistic philosophy that was not nihilistic nihilism was his great fear nihilism that is you know there's nothing to believe there's no story there's no meta-narrative there's no there's nothing really that makes sense of the absurdity of existence and so why even bother having any kind of narrative or something that we can actually lay hold of and believe in he wanted to avoid nihilism and watch fight club
0: on the uh, special The bonus features is Fight Club. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> exactly. there you go.
1: There you go. So, so his, his hope was for the Ubermensch, the overman, the Superman that would stride through the earth as a colossus in complete dedication to the will to power. To self. And he mm-hmm. said, we have to unchain ourselves from Christian slave morality. You, you have three philosophers that are known as the philosopher. Paul Ricoeur described them as the masters of suspicion. Yeah. Okay. Th- this is Freud, Nietzsche, Marx, mm-hmm. and they're all suspicious of the same thing, mm-hmm. the reality of altruistic love. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche says, no, it's all about power. Freud says, no, it's all about sex. Marx says, no, it's all about money. And there isn't any reality to this love thing. And so Nietzsche argues that that the that the Christian concept of the supremacy of love, faith, hope and love, the greatest of these love Mm -hmm. is what kept humanity weak and ennoble because he said it's just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. It prevents the strong from actually becoming the great heroic gods that they should become. And so his hope was for the Uberman. His fear was what he calls the last man or the last men, who are incurious utilitarians that desire nothing more than a bit of prosaic happiness. He really describes what we would today call a modern couch potato, who, who doesn't have any aspirations, sits around accounts, couch watching seven hundred channels, just you know here we are, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Um, well, who took Nietzsche seriously? Well, the Nazis did. And they regarded beyond good and evil, uh, the birth of tragedy, Antichrist, all of these books as their canonical text. And they actually sought to live it. Mm-hmm. So I have this, you know, I have this fantasy that I would meet Nietzsche in Basel, Switzerland and we would have lunch together. I preached and, in
0: Basel once.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've been in and, Basel. Uh, and we would, I'd have to get him caught up on what happened in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't think much of it would surprise him, but, I, but he wouldn't like the part where I had to explain what the Nazis had done with his philosophy. Now, Nietzsche was not anti-Semitic. He hated anti-Semitism. But I would also push back and I said, well, Nietzsche, where did you think this was going to end? With your fascination with violent power, you know, casting off all the restraints of what you call slave morality to love, how did you think this was going to end other than in death camps and a continent in ruins? And then in the book, I think, well, I am not the one to have lunch with Nietzsche. It's Kierkegaard that should have had lunch with Nietzsche because they're so similar. Nietzsche had heard of Kierkegaard, never read him, and Kierkegaard would never have heard of Nietzsche. And yet they're so similar in their critique of the herd mentality, the crowd mentality. Kierkegaard says the crowd is untruth. And, and uh, Nietzsche is so critical of the herd that he calls them the herd. And they, they're they both very and And Kierkegaard could be ever bit as polemic against the state-sponsored Lutherism, Lutheranism of his Denmark as Nietzsche was of Christianity in general mm-hmm. in Western Europe. but. Kierkegaard holds on to his Christian faith.
0: Hmm.
1: And uh, I just regard it as this terrible tragedy that the two never encountered one another. And I, and I, I just, I imagine their conversation and imagine Nietzsche doing one of his famous rants and Kierkegaard listening and nodding on yes, 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 yes. But have you thought about this? And then making a fresh case for the possibility of Christian faith in a secular age and i bring that out early in the book and in some ways this book i'm very respectful of those who are going through the phenomenon of deconstruction a term that comes yeah. from jacques derrida yeah. uh that's that's become very much in vogue these days and i understand right. i do and, I, and i'm nodding i'm saying yes 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 but have you thought about this and so yeah. this book was written from a pastoral uh, instinct to try to help people hold on to their Christian faith when everything's on fire.
0: Right. Right. Uh so um I've got, I want to hit about five more things that are in okay. your book. So you're gonna to have to like hit a couple of these points or most of these points quickly. Okay. All right. All right. Here we but go Lightning I round. do want to give this because my audience knows like and I and I shared with you Brian, I've made it, you know, I decided When I went through my personal crisis and came out of rehab in 2019 and, you know, was having to hire a divorce lawyer and and lost my career, lost my church, lost, 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 lost. I felt like my my faith felt shattered. I felt like I'd lost my faith or I felt lost in general. Right. And I really did. uh, I really did feel like an atheist. That's a feeling word. Yeah. I didn't ever say I was, I just said I felt like it. And I questioned everything I ever believed because I've always read, like I would have, I've always read broadly everything, right? Mm-hmm. From the science world, atheist, everything. So I had plenty of fuel to think things through from all kinds of angles in, in the in the midst of my pain, right? In the midst of my emotional meltdown. And, and I'm still, I'm still in process, still very much in process. And I, I think you probably picked up on that when we were together. Um, but, uh, I'm still, I I still tell people I'm a Jesus follower. Mm -hmm. I couldn't let go of Jesus (laughs) and I couldn't let go of a concept of God. I might shift my concept of God or rethink concepts of God's. But one of the things I loved about, uh, you're when you dive into the deconstruction chapter deconstructing deconstruction i think it is um i like the fact that you so many times what people are deconstructing is a version right of christianity like fundamentalism that is isn't required and and it would be like funda- I'm, i hadn't been a fundamentalist for decades <laughs> and and, you know, so and I, I, always felt the same thing. There's so many times when people are rejecting one thing that is such a limited, even sometimes a, a super dysfunctional aspect mm-hmm. of Christianity, right? And they're they're rejecting that. And so I, I, I appreciated your chapter on uh, most deconstructing that deconstruction
1: that know. I encounter that came from a Christian background is that they were raised as a Christian. And then at some point um, began to self-identify as an atheist. Most of them, not all, most of them really don't have a serious intellectual problem with theism. What they are is they're protest atheists. And so I will ask them, you were raised a Christian, Christian, but you're not, yeah, I'm an atheist. Well, tell me more about the God that you don't believe in. (laughs) Which mm-hmm. is which is an right. interesting question. And believe me, they can oh, tell you. It's an important question. And so they begin to tell me about the God that they don't believe in. And almost always I'm able to say, Yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Right, right. But I believe in God. Yeah. And so I, I've seen people because of a fundamentalist background reject Christianity. But essentially remain a fundamentalist (laughs) they just become they just become i mean how many times have i met atheists who told me you have to believe Mm -hmm. that god operates an eternal torture chamber i said i don't have to believe that yes you do if you're a christian i said no i don't i i I will have atheists telling me what i must believe if i'm going to be a christian because Mm -hmm. it's what they are rejecting i said i don't believe any of those things but i am a christian Yeah. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to help people hold on to a valid faith and make the distinction between fundamentalism and historic Christianity, Mm because they're quite different, actually.
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, All right. So um, one thing I wanted to hit on uh, you, you, you have an interesting take on the difference between spirituality and religion or Christianity is a religion. Mm-hmm. And it goes, it goes against the grain of, of the popular understanding yeah. of what, if you just take a pop culture uh, vocabulary what, you know, or dictionary, what's spirituality, what's religion, you kind of push against that, that popular yeah, I mean, understanding.
1: Yeah, Christianity is a religion. I mean, everybody knows that. And so
0: explain <laughs> that, though, because... It's, it's,
1: it's, it's just some Christians that go around and say it's not. And where that comes from, they are not getting that from Jesus. People say, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. I said, No, he already had one. He was an observant Jew that, in every sense, was a religious man. He had a religious text, religious prayers, religious calendar, religious diet, probably religious dress. And Jesus was, was religious.
0: And where people define religion, actual, for divine, define how you're using the term.
1: Religion is a tradition of practices and rituals designed to enable the person to encounter the divine, to think properly, speak properly, and hopefully encounter the transcendent, the divine, Mm -hmm. this religion. Mm -hmm. And the attack upon religion is not something they get from Jesus. It's something they are getting from Voltaire and Nietzsche. That's who they're following in that. And it's, it's a clever little move. They, 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 we still feel the withering attacks from Voltaire and Nietzsche upon Christianity as a religion, and they try to make this clever, oh, but we're not a religion. Yes, yes, you are. I'm, I, I belong to the Christian religion. What's happened is uh, American Protestant, maybe evangelicals, have been very sloppy in their thinking, and they conflate a bunch of things. You have to keep things distinct. There's Christ, there's the church, there's Christianity, and they're all three different. And Christ, who is Christ? Christ is, I could throw in the Bible too, I should probably address that one too. Christ is the incarnate logos, crucified and risen. The church is the community that gathers around this confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Mm -hmm. incarnate, crucified, risen logos. So it's a community. And then out of that comes the Christian religion that includes, by the way, the Bible. I mean, it's where it comes from, from that religion. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament is just appended in mass as a giant prequel. And then there's the canonical text, the 27 New Testament books. If you don't see Christians should never say that Christianity is absolute truth. They should never say that. Our confession is that Christ is the truth. Christ is the truth of God. Christianity is the religion in response to the revelation that Christ is the truth, and as such, it's capable of growth, development, correction, and change. This prevents us from some of the embarrassments of, for example, the Bible itself never gives a clear condemnation of the institution of slavery as immoral, and that the entire the entire institution must be abolished. The Bible never does that oh, in either Testament. I mean, I could say, uh, you know, if I wanted to try to defend the Bible, that's not my particular motive here. I could say that most of the time when the Bible's talking about slavery, not all the time, but most of the time, it's trying to mitigate the suffering, trying to bring a level of humaneness into the institution, perhaps. But I don't need to do that because that the Bible never gives a clear condemnation to slavery is not a problem because the christian religion as it grows and advances and develops over time is capable of producing think of think of think of christianity as a tree rooted in the soil of scripture but it's living and it's growing and it's changing Mm -hmm. and we can produce entire boughs of abolition limbs branches and so um if if you don't say that Christianity is a religion, what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, the, 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 the thing is people say, well, it's a relationship. Well, I don't, okay. No, it's not. It's, Christianity is not a relationship. Now, Christianity in its best form does aid us in countering the divine mm-hmm. through Christ yeah, And I would say it this way, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can thank the Christian religion for making that possible because it kept alive the message and has passed it mm-hmm. down from generation to generation. What religion does best when it's healthy is, is pass on the faith from generation to generation so that we don't all have to discover the wheel on our own, right. that it can be passed on. Um what people have confused also is religion with hypocrisy, that, that all practices of prayer and gathering and worship and liturgy and song and theology are somehow, no, they've confused that with what Jesus was, what Jesus was highly critical of was hypocrisy, not religion itself. Jesus was a religious man. Uh, And and religion is what we need if we're going to be properly formed and not just left to this vague, amorphous spirituality that is kind of just ends up being just do it yourself. And look, I just know I don't have enough wisdom to invent my own spirituality and think it's going to be anything more than a projection of my own preferences and desires. I need the wisdom tradition that stretches back eons And so if if Christianity isn't a religion, then people end up essentially having to argue that it's absolute truth and they become intolerant and they feel like they have to have the answer and that everything and that there can't be any deviation. There's no room for various expressions. You can't have, you know, Catholicism and Calvinism within the same christian religion because it has to be absolute truth and they can't both be right and so it produces very brittle angry uh sectarian kinds of people whereas when i recognize it as a religion that has a lot of different expressions and branches i can say okay well you know that's that's one expression Mm -hmm. of christian religion yeah but it's not the totality
0: of it yeah And and defining the terms is so important, you know, like in the recovery world, I'm talking the AA, higher power world. Religion's like a dirty word, you know, in that world. And they'll say- Because they've
1: been condemned through it. Right.
0: Religion is of man, spirituality is of God. This is like a mantra in the recovery world. And then if you even look in the big book, it's interesting, Bill W., you know, founded this this movement 87 years ago. So you have a book. (laughs) Well, it's, it governs like, almost like the Bible. Like, well, that's what I'm saying. An and I'm not saying this is a
1: pejorative. I'm saying yeah. recovery movement but is a religious expression.
0: Exactly. In a good way. Exactly. But they wouldn't want to say it that way.
1: What do you and, gather?
0: And you have no, confession. You have a book. You have church for people. Steps. You have dogma. It's, it's, it's absolutely adage. church for people. Yeah. And yeah. no, I'm way. not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not arguing with you, but. I'm just saying that's not the way that move that that group of people would describe it. Right. Yeah.
1: And I, just, um, I think that to intentionally so be religious is the last act of rebellion.
0: Well, what's what interesting. Is- I hear you. I hear you. I know. I heard you talk about the Ramones and it's, you know, it's like, yeah, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> like you're, you're like being like punk because you're religious. Anyway, I, right. Anyway, I got it. But, um, no, but like even bill, bill W was like, um, He had this idea of a grew up with a punishing, violent, cruel God. Yeah. So when he was trying to get sober, he he didn't he couldn't figure out the spiritual path. And his his buddy was like this is in the big book. His buddy was like, well, you just make up your own concept of God. Of course, you and I are like, yeah, that, that's not how it works. But anyway, but what well, I've well, watched, it, it might that, be a
1: way forward. It's a way If forward. what you've had has been
0: so it's, distorted and ugly. Well, I've watched it now for three years, Brian. I'm in relationship with hundreds of addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. OK, and what it, I, I this is my comment now. I've watched it now and people don't come up with a more cruel pathological God. <laughs> When you let them right. sort of come up right. with their own concept, they actually come up with a loving God.
1: <laughs> well, and is, it's so fun. It's so and fascinating. This is Maybe the theme of <laughs> sinners in the hands of a loving God. It is. It is. I, if, if you ask people if I'm not saying it is, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. But if just, if it's a yeah. thought experiment, if God was just like Jesus, would that be good news? Yeah,
0: exactly. And everybody goes,
1: Oh yeah, that'd be great news. <laughs> well, then I've got some good news. For exactly.
0: You. <laughs> yeah. I always like, uh, our buddy, our, I don't know trip, but you know, trip Fuller, but yeah, uh, yeah. he's like going, if you're God, it, you know, if you, if you believe in God, he should be at least as nice as Jesus.
1: Right. Well, my line anyway, that, that, that I new- use all the time is it's almost like a liturgy at Word of Life. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's yeah. never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. Yeah. We haven't always known this, but now we do.
0: Yeah. I used to say it like this. I used to say, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Yes. And if you yes. want to know what humans look like in the image of God, Mm-hmm. look at Jesus. That was my way of. You're putting the hip in the hypostatic <laughs> union, brother. <laughs> All right. All right. So we got two more things I want to hit here. We're, we're running out of time, but um, I love the fact that, um, you know, so much of fundamentalism is a response to modernism, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people in the world today, especially the evangelical world, even our evangelical seminaries, the way they teach hermeneutics is a modernist approach to yes. hermeneutics. Yeah. And I love the fact that you bring out this this idea that if we're gonna move forward in a healthy way in this, you know, postmodern world that we live in, there's some aspects of the pre-modern world that we need to kind of recapture, yeah. like mysticism, sacramental. And I loved how you, and I even, and I even talk about the way I talk about reading the Bible. You called it mystical reading. I would call it midrashic reading. Mm-hmm. But I want you yeah. to kind of do a little, little, maybe a little comment on that, and then I want you to end with Andre Rublev's picture mm-hmm. of Trinity, and end with your dream for the church and and the love and the community of love that you have in your heart as your The way we move forward okay you got where i'm sure sure.
1: um you're right in that fundamentalism is both a reaction to modernity but is itself fully modern right so you have the rise of empiricism beginning with rene descartes who himself was a believer but was trying to find epistemological bedrock, and he comes with comes up with cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am, and the thinking self becomes the sole arbiter of truth. Uh, this uncouples uh, any kind of scientific inquiry from tradition and from the governance of religious bodies and things like that. And it enables there to be now tremendous scientific advancement. I'm all for it. I just want to say right now, I don't know of any major peer-reviewed scientific theory that's any threat to my Christian faith. What I am saying is that once, once empiricism or science or whatever you want to describe it as, has said everything they can about the phenomenon of being, there is still more to be said. Right. And there is the reality of revelation, the heart. I mean, Blaise Pascal, contemporary and intellectual equal with Rene Descartes, says the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. And most people already know that's true, but sometimes we need to be given permission. What's happened with fundamentalists, they want to treat the Bible as an object of pure scientific inquiry. And they do it very yeah. ham-handedly and they're no good at, it, and they usually don't even know the original languages and all that. Yeah. Sort of stuff. No, it's terrible. But so they're out there trying to prove the Bible, <laughs> yeah, which is just such a mistaken venture yeah. to begin with. Yeah, that You know, if we can just find Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat or some rusty old chariots down the bottom of the Red Sea, then we will have proven, you wouldn't have proven anything. And that's, you're, you're missing the whole point of what scripture is about. Yeah. And it's, it, it's this journey toward the God who is, by nature, self-revelatory, revealing mm-hmm. himself. And, mm-hmm. and the Bible contains many of our best meditations on this. Uh, but you have to understand the Bible for what it is and try, not try to make it something that it isn't. Uh, this, this will free. So, so, look, I mean, I've read, you know, I've done my apprenticeship in historical critical thought of scripture Mm -hmm. i know that stuff i can do that i just don't want to do it forever i mean at some point i just want to be able to once again engage with scripture and say you know um and not not worry about you know the the violence of joshua and the conquest understanding that first of all historically it didn't happen it's israel later telling their story where they have their own motives but Look, there are things that I need to conquer in my life, and there's giants that need to be slain, and there's walls that need to fall down, and so I allow those stories to come and inspire a kind of faith directed always toward the supreme revelation of God that is Jesus Christ, the Logos made flesh, and that, and I don't have to prove the Bible, I don't have to argue about it. I can read it in a once again in a more mystical simple i don't know is it simpler maybe it's not as simple but it's
0: it's it's it's, it's i see it as artistic
1: i like that word i like that um, word a lot
0: yeah because literature itself is is art and the way we experience music paintings all kinds of art is is inspirational right? I'm, I'm convinced so, that the right.
1: sermon <clears throat> at its best is a form of art. Mm-hmm. It's an artistic enterprise. It's
0: creative enterprise. Within the cat- yeah. It
1: goes within the general category of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there is a way to artistically tell stories. Yeah. Uh, that has been a lost. We, we try to reduce all sermons these days to being practical, I hate that word, or being uh, utilitarian, functional, sort of lectures, how-to. Uh, at its best, the sermon creates alternatives of imagination mm-hmm. for possibilities yeah. beyond what we have handed to us you know by the empire or by the world as it is yeah. and so the sermon is a the is a the gateway only, into a prophetic imagination
0: the only so thing I people remember anyway stories <laughs> that's, well all the sermons i've preached the things that people remember are the stories you know that's so, uh, Exactly. and i like to say deep truth echoes everywhere i think that you know metaphor yeah. mythology truth all is truth is true science it just goes it echoes every- anyway all right so let's um let's uh man we could talk forever brian this is good stuff everybody get out here and read I'm, it
1: I'm, I'm 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 having a good time i'm good. just sitting in my basement talking to fred <laughs> good
0: stuff good stuff um So there's this, I was in your office a few weeks ago and you had a, uh, a replica Mm -hmm. of Andre Rublev's famous painting. Yeah. Which is called the Trinity. It it has another name. And then the hospitality
1: of Abraham is the technical name, but everybody calls it the Trinity. I think
0: Henry Nowen, is that right? Yes mentions this and he renamed it house of love. Right. Which and, and I felt I, like
1: I take that and I use that as a chapter title at the end of the book.
0: Yeah. And I, I love the way, you know, you when you talked about your dream for this, this Jesus following community, it well, had a lot of, had a lot of love in it. And so I love this painting. You can maybe describe it. I like the way you, I, I love that you had that in your office.
1: Yeah, I have, uh, yes, we have one, and I have a small one. Describe it to people. Study. You probably saw the large one that now is installed in our prayer room, the upper room. Um, it was painted by this monk, Andrei Rublev, in a Russian monastery during a time of political conflict. There was a civil war going on, the acrimony of which was even being now felt within the monastery as people, you know, decided if they were Republicans or Democrats, <laughs> that's an anachronism, but you get my point. Yeah. Yeah. And so Rublev wanted to create an icon that would be an invitation for people to leave the house of fear, because uh, that's what, that's the negative energy that's present in political vitriol is you're always afraid, afraid of the other side, afraid of what they're going to do, afraid of how they're going to ruin everything, afraid of what you're going to lose, that sort of thing. And so ostensibly, the icon is a depiction of the three angels that come to Abraham when he was living under the oaks of Mamre, and he prepares a meal for them. And so you see Abraham kind of off, on the side and you have these three angels. Of course, as you read the story there in Genesis, it becomes apparent. I mean, you, as a Christian, you can't read it without thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a picture of the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it clearly moves beyond being angelic to being divine in the story. And so you have these three angels that are seated around a four-sided table, all looking at kind of deferring to one another looking at one another and so it almost creates as you look at it you almost see the perichoresis the circle dance of the trinity being formed there i mean there's you go online you can find real in-depth analysis of this icon but what's interesting is that nearest to the viewer there is an opening there's a, there's a vacant place and rublev through the icon is inviting the viewer to come into, to leave the house of fear and come into the house of love,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to come into the fellowship of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unending, unconditional, mutual love and belong to that family. I mean, that's, the, that's at the heart of the gospel, mm-hmm. that we are invited to leave the house of fear with its ugliness, with its hate. I mean, look. Hate is what is the mask that fear wears to make itself look tough. If you take fear off the table, how many enemies do you really have? I mean, what what lurks behind most anger, vitriol, hatred, you know, all of that is fear. We're we're, we're afraid. Mm. This This is why every time an angel, an emissary from heaven comes, What do they say every time, every time, every time? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I do a lot of these podcasts and often they'll they'll say, okay, BZ, you're 63 years old. What would you say to your 23-year-old self? And I think, well, you know, I couldn't tell my 23-year-old self much. (laughs) He wouldn't listen. But the one thing I probably would say is I would say, don't be afraid. Because I've spent too much of my life being afraid. I mean, bad things are going to happen. That's life. But God is love. And when you become convinced that the creator of the cosmos unconditionally loves you and that God's only disposition towards you is one of unalterable, unconditional, unending love, well, that's the perfection of love that in time can drive out all fear. And once the fear is gone, then you don't need to hate. You're not inclined to do that, and so and you don't feel like you have to try to change the world. You can simply be present in the world as a peaceable soul, and and just by your presence and your establishment in love and peace, that becomes something that can change people. Not through coercion, not through even necessarily, you know, teaching but just by embodying that kind of loving presence. And so that's the hope that I have for the church. The future is, is that we will, for goodness sake, get rid of any, any kind of involvement in culture wars and uh, you know, huddled anxiously at the, at the gate trying to get out of here through dispensational eschatology, rather to be at home, be present in the world, not seeking to be combative, but seeking to be contemplative, and then inviting people into the house of love.
0: Are you telling me that God is love? I I believe that,
1: that more and more and more. That's like where really like that's really? the
0: trajectory. That's the growth. Like that that is good news for every human on this planet.
1: You know, I was in the. That? I was.
0: I was. Is that in, good news for every it's, person it's on this best, planet?
1: The best news. And so I was in the office of a new testament professor at southeastern university i guess it is it's an assembly of god school so you know it's whatever Mm -hmm. conservative (laughs) this is the new testament professor there robbie waddell good guy and he had a greek orthodox icon of saint anthony and you've seen these icons, you know, often these saints, you know, with their long beards and their robes, and they're often holding a scroll that will typically have in Greek one of their famous sayings. But this one was not in Greek. It was in English. So it was easy to read. And this, this uh, Assembly of God, New Testament professor, has a Greek Orthodox icon of St. Anthony the Great holding a scroll, and it read, I no longer fear god i only love god and i I understand that i under i understand the journey the fear of god is not bad it's it's a it's a it's the beginning of wisdom i think it's i think of the fear of god is beginning to understand a couple of things to take god seriously and to recognize that we live in a universe that is consequential that is that the universe is created by a God of love through love for love. And as we go with love, we go, we tend to go with the grain of the universe. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen, but things tend to go better. When we say, no, I'm not going to love God. I I just want to love myself. And no, I'm not going to love my neighbor as myself. Why would I, I'm going to use my neighbor. Then we're going against the grain of love and we begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted pain. And So I believe that God is love. He's nothing but love. God is not love, but God is love, period. And what we learn to do is to grow in that revelation. And once we begin to be perfected in that, then we no longer have any fear. This is is pure John the Elder. Then we no longer have any fear. And when we don't have any fear, then we find it very easy to become accepting and bring other people in and just sit with them and accept them as they are. And we become very broad in our capacity to love all kinds of different people because we're not fighting. We're not afraid. And so that's, that's the hope I have. Yeah,
0: I like it. Thank, Thank you, Fred. You. Thank you, Brian. Um, so I want to encourage people uh, when everything is on fire, faith forged from the ashes and i and i think you would love sinners in the hands of a loving god as well they go great together i think because of with both books you know you're you're coming through with this message loud and clear of the church a jesus community of being a place of love and good news for every person on the planet amen and, and good news for the planet itself.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> all right, Brian. Well, thank you so much for being a part of our uh, podcast and join us on Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for the work that you do in St. Joseph, Missouri and all around the world as well. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures. And we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation. Or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.